What's up, future changemakers? You're listening to Impact India, a podcast that deep dives into the epic stories of social entrepreneurs and social innovation in India. Impact India is sponsored by CauseArtist, your go-to social impact lifestyle online platform for all things social goodness around the world. And I'm your host, Jasmine Rain, social entrepreneur and director of content at CauseArtist. You can connect with me on Instagram at Jasmine Rain. All right, no stopping us now, full speed ahead. Let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another amazing episode of Impact India. Amazing because I'm finally getting to interview Jitna Bagani. So Jitna is passionate about empowering uh, disadvantaged women, challenging gender inequality, and truly wants to make a positive impact in this world. And she is doing it through so many beautiful ventures. She is the founder of Shaktiism, a nonprofit social enterprise that empowers and employs disadvantaged women in India and beyond. And she will survive a global gender equality advocacy project. Um, Jinna is based in the UK and comes back and forth to India. We connected. Uh, we connected through, I guess, our our uh, when Potter World launched the Bombay tours. Um, and honestly, ever since I've been such a big fan. So, Jinna, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, to get us started. I really like your story really, really inspires me. I'd love for you to kind of start from the beginning. You know, what has led you on this journey to starting this incredible social enterprise, Shaktiism, and what led to, you know, the development of She Will Survive? Um, Yeah, so it's one of these things that um, I think it's just kind of always been uh, part of who I am. Like, um, I've always known I wanted to work with um, women and girls, uh, particularly in empowerment. Um, it's always felt like, like you know, my calling, I guess. Um, so I've always been interested in humanitarian issues. And I think part of that is um, from my own experience and also my family history. So um, um, I am ethnically Indian and my parents actually come from East African countries. And I remember the stories that my mom used to tell me about growing up in, in you know, like really destitute conditions in uh, Tanzania and she would tell me about how she and her eight siblings um, sorry seven siblings so there were ten of them all together with the parents um, they lived in kind of a one room I wouldn't even call it a house but like a shack maybe something um, dwelling and um, you know they used to kind of like when they would come home um, they would lie about having eaten because they would only have you know one roti for one roti one chapati for the entire family um, so yeah, I think I think this kind of kept me grounded, um, learning about these kind of things. And my dad had a similar story coming from Kenya, um, and we were. It always just kind of made me interested in other places and kind of giving back, and um, made me uh, quite appreciative of you know all the things that I have um, because I always I, I never had to you know experience anything like that. Um, I think also, um, yeah, I think I think part of the. The other part of it, I think uh, the She Will Survive bit came from my personal experience. So um, I, when I was a teenager, I was actually, um, quite, I, was, I was living in the United States. I was quite um, the outspoken little feminist at like age 12, 13, um, because my parents, um, they, they came from quite humble backgrounds, as I said. And then, um, but they were, they were never really... Um, restrictive of us as girls. So I'm the oldest of three girls and, you know, they were really empowering and, um, which was wonderful. Um, but, 
um, we still had this thing where we didn't talk about sex or we didn't talk about bodies. We didn't talk about menstruation. None of these things that are considered taboo or, you know, stigmatized in Indian society, Indian community. Um, so when I was uh, 13 years old, I was raped by somebody in the community. Um, and this, I think, kind of was the catalyst for everything that's come afterwards, like she will survive on Shaktism. Um, initially, it was, um, it was quite hard because I, I wasn't able to speak out because, um, like in so many collective cultures, we don't grow up talking about these things and then I suppose a lot of the blame, a lot of the guilt falls on the victim's shoulders. Um, and this is why so many women and girls don't speak out. And even boys and men don't speak out because society shames them as opposed to the, the perpetrator. Um, so overcoming what happened to me has been quite a long journey. And it's something I still have difficulty with at times, of course. Um, but I think, I think She Will Survive was um, a kind of like a healing project for me. Um, so as I said, I, I knew I always wanted to do something for women and girls. And then I think the, I think the, the kind of defining moment was um, when I had my first child um, uh, because she was a girl. Um, and then I thought like, as a mother of a girl, as somebody who is you know, a fierce feminist and like true believer in gender equality, I cannot as a mother sit back and do nothing um, because what happened to me was not right. And at the same time, like what happened to me um, I mean, okay, I think it's not, it's not a good thing. I, I shouldn't say like, it's not that bad. There's this quite a good book by Roxane Gay called um, Not That Bad, which is really good about discussing this, how people tend to like minimize what happened to them. Um, but basically, I think like for me in living in such a privileged situation, um, it was still really, really harmful, really, really traumatic, really difficult. And it just kind of, it just kind of reinforced that, okay, there are other people out there that have it so much worse off than I do that have this problem and they also do not have a way to speak out. So She Will Survive was born out of that um, as a way for me to kind of like try to make the world a better place for my child um, and also to, to help support other girls who are, you know, going through or have been through what I went through. Um, so She Will Survive is essentially, um, it's a passion project that is, um, it's essentially a, um, a global repository of support services for anyone impacted by gender-based violence. Um, there are men's resources, there are LGBTQ resources, pretty much for anyone and in every country in the world. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been really interesting because um, it's not a funded project. It's just literally something I did in my spare time just to kind of keep myself sane after having my kids, um, like being so tired at the end of the day. And it's like, no, you know, I really want to work on this instead of, you know, rest or whatever. Um, because it feels quite good to, to, be able to give somebody else a voice. Um, and I'm really, really happy to say that um, despite having like zero budget, um, I don't do any advertising or do anything. Um, it's a really popular website. And I think as of last count, um, I think we've reached like 127 countries or something. Um, and every day it's five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 countries, like um, people accessing it from all over the place. I even had um, an email, I think it was last month from Harvard Business School saying like, hey, we, we use your resource. Can you let us know if this is still up to date and stuff? She's like, oh, wow, that's really cool. And so, um, so yeah, so that was, that was the first phase. And then after that kind of, after that launched, um, that was really good. And I, I started doing some other advocacy projects through that, including like mentoring parents, kind of um, starting to like really speak out about, and I used to write a lot about um, why we should talk to our kids 
kids about these things, why we shouldn't stigmatize these topics, you know, all of these things um, that I learned through my journey. Um, and then I realized I wanted to do something on a bigger scale. So um, Shaktiism came out of that. And essentially, um, that was initially going to be a, the initial idea was to, to um, make a women's empowerment uh, social enterprise, but to focus on sanitary health, like menstrual health. Um, and my original idea was to basically employ women in disadvantaged countries um, or communities to make reusable sanitary pads. But I quickly realized that this was not that, um, it wasn't a really good goal because, um, or it wasn't a really good mission because um, a lot of the women that, like while it would be good work, a lot of the women that I would want to use those products don't have access to like hygienic facilities and things. And it could actually be more dangerous than using something else. So, um, after an initial project in Kenya um, to basically to give um, like we did, a, I did a menstrual health project um, with, I think it was like 300 plus um, rural kids outside of Nairobi. Um, and this was really great, but um, then I realized, okay, I need to do something else. Um, and also this thing about sustainability, like I really do want to make a difference, but as much as I hate to admit it, money needs to be a part of that. So um, it kind of evolved after many, many, many conversations and lots of research into what it is today, which is um, a women's empowerment uh, project. And it's um, basically I employ and empower women in India and now as of recently in Bangladesh to um, use uh, sari fabric or like local, local traditional fabrics um, that have been donated to us. And then we basically, um, you know, we clean them up. We, um, uh, cut them up, which is quite fun, and then um, make them into really beautiful things uh, because all of these women are incredibly talented and abled. Um, and then I sell those. And basically, as a social social business, all the money goes back into the business and into supporting those communities. Um, so, yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. I feel like every time I talk to you, I just get re-inspired and re- like I, all, so much comes up again <laughs> because I'm, I really, what, all of the moving parts of all the things that you're doing are just so beautiful and come together. And thank you. Thank you so much for being vulnerable. Again, I, um, for our listeners, this is actually our second time recording this episode um, due to some audio issues as it always happens in podcasts. But uh, like every time I hear you speak about like, you know, your journey and the projects you're doing, there's just so much passion and dedication and, you know, someone who is a survivor uh, of sexual assault, of rape. And like, I don't want to be afraid of also using that word because uh, mm. it, it's, it's not okay for you to think that you're like for, for survivors to just kind of like make their, their story seem like it's not as big of a deal as it is. It is a huge deal. And to have the, 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 the willpower and the commitment and the dedication to women all around the world to build a resource for them to feel like they uh, can have somewhere to go to, to, you know, uh, help, help their situation to connect with people, to find resources. Like this is incredible. So thank you so much uh, for what you do. Cause you. you know, and one of the things that we talked about last time was, you know, it's not just awareness, but it's also like actually putting things in place to help with prevention. Um, yeah. So that's really that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. That's really kind of you. Um, yeah. And I think, I think that's one of the things like, um, I mean, even for me growing up, not talking about these things, even today, I'm such a fierce advocate of this, like that we need to talk about these things. We need to use the word rape. We need to, we need to talk about our bodies. I mean, and as somebody who grew up not talking about these things, it's incredibly, I'm 
comfortable for me now trying to explain to my four-year-old like obviously not that kind of stuff but like you know talking to her about like periods or you know if she has questions about stuff I'm gonna try to answer them in an age-appropriate way but yeah I mean even for me it's super uncomfortable but like we have to push through it because we're not going to change anything we're not going to change these hard-coded beliefs about gender inequality if we don't yeah if we don't actively try to change these these ideas a hundred percent and it's obviously you know it's it's more needed now than ever like if there's still like mass amounts of people who are accessing your website you know it's it's very evident that we need to be doing even more um yeah. and i'd actually love for you to dive in for our listeners you know what are some of the systemic issues uh that you know you really see especially like you know as uh, someone who is South Asian and also has lived in like all across the world and as someone with so much knowledge and also lived experiences both you know being a survivor <laughs> and also working with women who are survivors you know what are the systemic issues that perpetuate gender-based violence that you see commonly so I think I think it's two primary things so like obviously gender inequality is the big 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 um, reason for this like um, I think a lot of a lot of this like unequal thinking is ingrained into so many cultures around the world. I would say, I mean, arguably even every culture in the world, some more than others, of course, but like there are so many things that, um, that we don't even question. And, um, it's quite funny because I remember being a teenager, I used to question, I mean, like, yeah, I was one of these people who was like, as I said, quite outspoken, little feminist. And like, I used to ask my mom when I was, you know, 14, 15, like, but why can't I go to the temple if I'm on my period? Why can't I do all this? So I think, like when when you ask people who simply accept their way of being um you realize that people don't actually even notice that you know it's something discriminatory it's so inherently a part of you know this is what we do this is and i think in collective cultures this is this is more so the case um so i think gender inequality is a huge huge part of the problem um i think another part of the problem is poverty um so for example like um much of the let's say child marriage much of the human trafficking and other horrendous human rights abuses um occur at the root basically because of poverty so for example like there are parents who will um marry off their children because it's considered safer than you know okay if we um if we just leave her uh, you know, to grow up and to do whatever, then she'll probably be raped. And this is kind of both things. This is like, okay, well, this is gender inequality and this is also an issue with poverty, right? Like, if we can educate these people and say, hey, um, this is not the right way to do it. Um, or like the trafficking issue is um, more a case of poverty where um, some people are in such desperate situations that they have no choice but to sell off the child because um, they're just so, so desperate. And by you know, by sacrificing maybe one child, you can feed all the rest of them. Um, and this is horrible. I mean, it, it shouldn't be like this. Um, so part of part of my mission is kind of this um, in Shaktiism. Like, I, I think por- poverty is, I mean, I think it's horrendous that this still exists. And like, while we've made a lot of progress in the past nearly three decades, um, we have a long way to go. So I think if we can educate people about the consequences of these things, if we can kind of lift women in communities, um, by empowering them economically, um, we give them a say, we give them respect, we give them independence. Um, and it's also to be very, very honest, like if a woman is bringing home, I, I think many, many men 
around the world do not like this idea because of this cultural, you know, this cultural idea that women are inferior or whatever. And I think a lot of them don't like this idea that, oh, my woman's, my wife is going to be outside the house working and doing all these things. This is a man's job. But there have been so many studies that show that once they start bringing home the money, that attitude changes because, you know, all of a sudden they can afford to, vac- afford to vaccinate their children. They can buy, you know, whatever, new car, nice TV, like whatever, food, um, whatever the case is. So I think, yeah, I think if we can lift women um, economically and also, you know, kind of raise their status in society, and I think economic empowerment is a good way to do that, kind of make men and women see themselves as equal, because a lot of women also perpetuate this, um, a lot of women's beliefs rather. Um, And I think if we can educate people about the consequences of these short-term things like, you know, dropping off somebody at a brothel to make some quick money because you're so desperate um, and providing dignified work for people who are barely scraping by, we can eliminate the need to make these drastic choices so that people don't have to choose between like their children and survival. And we can maybe reduce um, gender-based violence. Mm, that's so powerful. And I feel like it's something that, uh, you know, it's becoming more of a topic of you know, that, like it's definitely trending right now talking about like the economic mm-hmm. Uh, how economic empowerment can actually just completely shift the role of a woman in her household, especially in like more marginalized communities. And, you know, I'm curious when it comes to gender-based violence, like within a family, um, you know, last time we chatted, you also mentioned a few things in regards to like, um, you know, uh, the, the relationship between like young girls and, you know, older family members and the concept mm-hmm. of grooming and, yeah. um, you know, these are, these are pretty new concepts, especially in the West for like listeners who uh, don't, are not really like in the Indian um, uh, context here. Uh, would you be able to dive into that again? Because I think that would, yes. there was a lot of value in understanding kind of what that can look like within a family setting and how people can start to identify the signs so that they can uh, be sure to be a leader in making sure that any young people in their family are not being taken advantage of. Yeah, so... So something unique to, as I said, like before, the collective cultures like Indian and so many other cultures, um, women tend to be seen as second class citizens, right? So they're they're considered to be less valuable than men. And this is perpetuated by things like, um, you know, you educate the boy or the boy um, is the one that goes to work and take care of the family. And then you have this dowry system and all of this stuff, which is essentially minimizes a woman to like a commodity. Um, and then in, in in more of these like cultural practices, you have this thing where like, um, you're supposed to respect your elders, um, period. So grooming tends to happen in these kind of situations. And this is something that's really, really personal for me because I was groomed as a child um, before I was raped. And the person who raped me was like somebody, um, it was a Brahmin. He was a from a really, really prestigious family, you know, like parents are doctors and, you know, all of this. And like not the kind of people that you would ever question, um, you know, their morality or their standing or whatever. Um, but by having these, um, these preconceived notions about people and just saying like, right, you have to respect people by their, you know, because of their title, because of their age, because of whatever, um, we are basically, we're like, we're endangering our kids by doing this. So by forcing our kids to, you know, hug an auntie, hug an uncle, um, essentially like you can be paving the way for grooming like that. So, um, and grooming, I guess for anybody who's not familiar with it is basically somebody who tries, um, intentionally to gain a child or someone vulnerable um, to, 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 excuse me to gain the trust of somebody uh, like a child or somebody who's vulnerable 
um, with the intent of abusing them. Um, and this is really, really common um, in rape and in sexual assault in general, and not just in Indian society. Um, it's usually somebody you know. Um, and it's the same thing with trafficking. Um, so by, by forcing our kids to not question things, by forcing our kids that, oh, you must do as this person says, no matter what, you are kind of, you're like deterring them from speaking out or, you know, or maybe questioning um, strange behavior. So like, um, yeah, I, I think, I think we, have to, we have to be aware of this and we have to, we have to, I think that in addition to like speaking out about sex and these kind of things, um, we have to, yeah, we, got, we just got to start talking about this stuff. Um, yeah, and I think um, going back to the trafficking thing, um, it's, I've, I cannot tell you how many stories I have read about like, um, in, particularly in rural areas, uh, this is in India, but this is actually all over Southeast Asia and South Asia, um, where somebody who is like a trusted friend of the family. And again, this thing about like, um, oh, this is a respectable person. They have nice clothes. They have a nice house. They have a nice car. They wear jewelry, whatever. Um, this is somebody respectable in the community. Um, and the reason for, um, in so many cases, the reason for this person having all these lovely things is because they're a trafficker. Because um, everybody, just, everybody just blindly trusts this person. And then this person goes and says, hey, uh, I want to go and show you the city. Hey, I can get you a job as a, you know, whatever as a worker as a domestic uh domestic like a i guess a cleaner or like you know i can get you a good job in the city and then families kind of jump at this chance because oh yeah why wouldn't we listen to this person who is making good money and who's you know has a fantastic reputation and then they never see their kids again um so like we really oh, have to that's so heartbreaking god it's, it's horrible and it's so common um so like we have to question these things we have to we have to just not accept you know, what the community says just because they say it and not accept traditions without understanding them. Um, because so much of this, so much of this misogynistic, um, yeah, these attitudes are just ingrained in all our cultures. Like we just, we have to stop. We really have to stop. Um, I think one other thing about India is just, um, it's, it's not particularly with the culture and the tradition, but I will say, um, just because it's quite important, um, that by not speaking out about, um, uh, by not speaking to our children about sex and things like this, what ends up happening is um, most most of our children get their sex education from uh, pornography. And in India, this is very, very much the case. I think it's like 60% of people learn about sex from porn. And what that does is, number one, um, is completely skewed. Um, so like they have completely unrealistic expectations. And number two, um, it normalizes gender-based violence. So then... Um, you know, then you have these cases, um, like these rape cases and things. And actually there was a really interesting study done by a woman from, she, she's from India, but she, she studied in the UK and for her thesis, she like for her dissertation project, she went back to India and she interviewed, I think it was like a hundred men who were convicted rapists in the Delhi's Tihar jail. And so many of them were like, I don't even understand what I did wrong because they're so like, like they didn't even... I mean, they were so, so desensitized to this being violent, um, you know, to raping a child or a woman or a girl or whatever. Um, there was even one guy who was like, when I get out, I'm going to marry this girl because no one else is going to want her in the community. So it's, to me, I found this really interesting because it's like, on the one hand, you know that you've kind of like ruined her in front, in the eyes of society. But in the second hand, he's like, 
I feel badly for her and, you know, I'll do the noble thing. And it's just like, this is so skewed. Um, so like, yeah, I think we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> we really have a lot of work to do to fix this problem. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, I actually was speaking to my husband recently about this, like talking about like the lack of sex education for young people and how like that, like, kids are learning about sex before like the age of 13 or having like unprotected sex at such a young age and not understanding uh, like anything about what it is. Um, and absolutely, like I, I think the statistic is very close to like 60% of Indians like, uh, like are learning about yeah. sex from porn or like even actually just in general, I think like 60% of online traffic uh, is, is pornography related in India, which is... Yeah mind-boggling especially when first of all it's illegal in this country yeah. and second of all like think about the pornography that is out there it is so violent and discriminating <laughs> towards women it doesn't like it i don't even know how to say it in like a serious voice because it's so alarming um so yeah and a lot of it is actually um sorry to interrupt just a, a lot okay. of it is actually um being monetized like a lot of um mm -hmm like revenge porn and like yeah non-consensual stuff a lot of it is actually being monetized like there are companies like Pornhub in particular um because there's, there's a huge campaign going on at the moment that like um it also contributes to racism like the way that black right. women are portrayed in yeah. I mean like the list just goes on and on <laughs> it's yeah it's it's yeah. horrific I mean I mean I, based on all of this like how do you feel <laughs> every day <laughs> working with you know uh women who are so vulnerable, like it has to be so emotionally challenging for you to do this work. Yeah. Um, I think it's easier now than it would have been maybe like 10, 15 years ago, because, um, I, as I said, I think she will survive was a really empowering project for me. Um, because it was also a way for me to speak out. Um, like my, my story is publicly written on the website and I even showed it to my parents. I'm like, this is still something we don't talk about, but like for, for me to, yeah, just to put it out there. I think that's really empowering and it allows you to kind of let go. Um, so I think that helped me kind of move to the next phase and also like having, having, I now have two girls and um, yeah, I, I actually, I went to a, a talk that was um, by, it, it was really fascinating. There's a woman called Sahela Abdul Ali. She's the first Indian woman to ever speak out about being raped. This was in the eighties. Um, and she I think it was just last year she came to the UK on a book tour. She's got a book that's called, um, what is it called? Uh, what we talk about when we talk about rape. And she, you know, I met her after and I said like, I'm so terrified. And she told me, she's like, no, you know what? She's like, I have a 17 year old daughter and my 17 year old daughter is the same age as I was when I was raped. And she's going to India. She lives in the States now, this, uh, the author, Miss Abdul Ali. And um, she told me her daughter's going back to India. So exactly the same age, exactly the same conditions. And she's like, you know what? I'm not terrified. And I said, how can you not be terrified? And she said, she has me. She's like, she has me. If anybody knows how to deal with, you know, this kind of situation, it's my child. And that kind of put everything into perspective for me. Um, there's like, okay, like these horrible things are still happening, but it's true. I can use my story to help other people. Um, and I will be honest, like it is really emotional sometimes, especially reading or hearing some of these, these stories about the trafficking and like the violence, the just inhumane violence. Um, and I think, I think for me, the hardest thing is to hear about um, 
the children, because let's be honest, in, in India in particular, um, and in Bangladesh, where, where most of my work is in India and Bangladesh, um, this is, it's a huge, huge problem. Like child abuse is rampant and it's, it's really hard some days. But I think it also motivates me to keep going because like we need people who have been through this kind of stuff um, and come out okay on the other side. Um, I won't say like fine, but I'll say okay. Um, because, I mean, we have to change it. So yeah, I, I think I think when you when you hear about the things that I mean, as I said, my I I can say like okay, my story is not that bad. It's bad. I know it's bad, but it's not that bad. Uh, when I hear some of the stories of the, like the women that we work with, um, and you see how how they've come out at the other end, it's like it's just so incredibly inspiring. And you see how mm. resilient these women are. These women who have nothing, like literally nothing, um, and. Yeah, and they still have this will after being just so brutalized. Um, they still have this will to, you know, to do, go on for their children and stuff. Like it's, it, I, think, I think on the one hand, you see this thing and you start to lose faith in humanity. But then on the yeah. other side, you see these powerful women and you're just like, people are inherently good. Yeah. Um, and people are so incredible and so resilient and so just, yeah, inspiring, I think so. Yeah, it's and you fit into that. Like, I hope you know that. So, don't (laughs) like I want to hold you accountable to like saying like women shouldn't say that like my story isn't that bad. So don't say that about your story. (laughs) I'm working on it. It's your lived experience, and it's also led you down this beautiful path to supporting others. And you know, I want to before we kind of close off, I want to touch a little bit on like the 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 like the transformation that Shaktiism has gone through, especially during COVID. But before we get there, I just wanted to kind of touch again on like, you know, now that you are a mother of two beautiful girls, you know, what, you know, what, what do you, what, what are you practicing, I guess, currently, you know, I know your girls are still really young, but like, you know, how do you introduce them to these topics? And maybe do you have any advice for like young mothers, future mothers, you know, mothers who are struggling with these topics, what might be a good approach for them in addressing, uh, maybe not just with their girls, but also with their boys? How do you bring children into this conversation so that you can start tackling, you know, gender-based violence, like at a, at a young age? Yeah. So, um, it's really interesting. Parenting changes everything. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's really important. As I said, like a lot of these topics are still really uncomfortable for me. Even me, who's like completely surrounded by this topic every single day of her life. Um, it's still really awkward to talk about these things with like my four-year-old, for example. I mean, I don't go into so much detail because like, I think you have to do it in a very age appropriate way. Um, but I, I really try my best to be very honest. Like, um, when I was breastfeeding my little one, the older one was kind of like, you know, what is this? Um, and then I explained to her, okay, like mommies make milk and blah, blah, blah. And like, she thinks this is totally normal. And she does this, she feeds her dollies. It's really sweet. Or like, um, like talking about body parts and stuff. I think one of the big ones in, in our culture and in so many cultures, um, is, you know, not calling our body parts what they are. Um, that that doesn't make any sense. That really doesn't make any sense. And like, I agree. So like, yeah. So, I mean, like, I bought, I bought a really good book that I, um, I forget what it's called, but, um, it's on my website. It's on Shakti. It's, um, excuse me, on She Will Survive. Um, uh, there's quite a few like good recommended reading. Um, there's a reading list, I think of discussing these kind of things about like puberty and this kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, like a lot of these things are bodily functions. A lot of them are normal. So while like, I don't go into really, really graphic detail or anything, if my daughter asks me a question, I'm going to answer her, um, as best I can. Um, and then 
I will adapt my answer as she gets older. Um, it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's important. Um, yeah. And I think, I think it also helps me that my husband is from Sweden where like things are not uncomfortable. You just talk about everything. So well, whenever mm, I'm uncomfortable, it's a good I kind of, like call him in the room. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. helps. Um, yeah. I, I was going to say, actually, um, I, I did quite a, a, I don't do it so much anymore, but I, um, under, under the guise of She Will Survive, I was actually doing a mentoring project for um, one, of my, one of my friends in Mumbai. She runs a, a parenting group um, for, for parents who are like really well-meaning and kind of they want to start discussing these things and, uh, and also other things, um, but they don't know how. So um, actually on the She Will Survive website, if you go through the blog, there are lots of parenting resources for free um, where I talk about like why you should talk about these things and um, yeah, there's a, it's all downloadable. It's all free. So, um, that's another good place to start. Um, just on like what you should talk about and like, um, you know, what if, like, how do you explain pornography to your kids and this kind of stuff? Um, mm. a lot of which I haven't gotten to yet, but like, I will be doing the same thing when, when the time comes. Oh, that's awesome. So for all of our listeners, I'll have all of, um, the links in the show notes at causeartist.com so you can access all these resources. Um, that's awesome. There's like, I, I feel like there's just like, it, it sounds like it's like an endless well of resources. She will survive. Like I, <laughs> like I didn't even realize I could go, I'm going to go deeper into the website now because I, I'd love to obviously empower myself with more knowledge that I can share with my community. Um, so thank you for <laughs> thank that. You. Yeah. And so kind of switching gears before we sign off, you know, like, you know, you're running this incredible social enterprise, like e-commerce platform during, you know, a global pandemic. And from my understanding, you also launched, like officially launched during the pandemic. Um, last time we chatted, you know, we talked quite a bit about how the training of your, of your, uh, the women that you're working with, how it's kind of like transitioned through COVID to make it more like virtually accessible and making it accessible in general so that women still have access to economic opportunity during this time. So I'd love for you to just kind of give us an overview of, you know, what that's looked like and, you know, what are, are what our listeners can expect kind of over the next couple of months in interacting with Shaktiism. Yeah. So um, it's, it's really, really interesting what happened. So basically I had, I've been planning this, this business for a long time. Um, I was lucky to, like to, I got a lot of things started um, remotely, like from here, from the UK, because um, obviously with two small kids, it's not that easy to travel to India as much as I would like, um, and also to Bangladesh. And so I started a lot of things in the back end, like having samples shipped to me and, um, you know, placing orders and things like that. And then I was lucky to go to India in February. Um, and literally a week after I got back, I got a shipment and then everything shut down. Like shipments from India were blocked. The UK was on lockdown. Um, so I hadn't actually started selling anything yet and I did not have a launch date in mind. Um, and then I realized like, okay, I need to get it together. Like I need to launch because I want to keep paying wages. Um, because I, I mean, a lot of my teams, like, okay, they, a lot of them had much more than the, you know, official five weeks of lockdown. A lot of them were not able to work and they missed being at work. So we did a couple of things. Um, so number one, I launched. Um, and I, I think this is also quite a good, uh, it was a quite a good learning experience. Um, and now I'm quite a firm advocate of like, launch before you're ready. Um, because you, I suppose like, it's such a, it feels like such a big deal to launch a business. But I don't know, I think, you like nothing is permanent. You can always make changes and you can always iterate. So launch then iterate is kind of my advice. Um, and I'm still iterating, but actually it's going really, really well. Um, like much better than I thought. So, um, this is really good. And as a result of that, um, 
I was able to fund um, a new order during lockdown. So this was really, or a few orders during lockdown. So this was interesting because um, like my, my tailing team in um, Pondicherry, for example, they, um, they were not able to leave home, but a lot of them were really missing being at work. So I came up with like a really simple thing that they could do from home, like manually hand stitch without machines um, and gave them something to do from home. Um, so that was quite nice with the, um, with the team in Jaipur. Um, we ended up doing, uh, what was my first remote training of, um, like tailoring training. So, uh, my team is in Jaipur, but they also work with, um, groups in Ajmer and, um, they let me sit in on the training, which was really cool. And so basically we were literally like, I got up super early UK time and we did, um, we did, uh, zoom training four women in the slums in Ajmer. And this was so, so nice because like, um, you could see like every single woman was in her home. Like some of them had their kids with them. A few of them even had their husbands, which is amazing because they were supportive, um, which is of course not always the case. And we were showing them how to make face masks. Um, and yeah. And then literally like they, they were all really eager to work and, um, by doing this then you know, like slowly we can start to build up their um, their skill and then we can start doing quality checks once things are you know once it's safe to do so and then bring them into a like a training facility and then finally um this is also really funny um i so i the team in pondicherry um they're they're part of a uh really really marginalized community a nomadic community um it was one of the you know like when i forget what they're called um but basically the like the british during the British empire, there were all these, um, there were like, there was the caste system, obviously. And then there were like these people who were like the outside tribes or whatever. Um, and they were kind of stripped of their like tribal status. Um, just really horrible. I mean, a lot of the things were really horrible, but yeah. Oh, so gosh. this is one of those communities and they were essentially like banned from their livelihood. They were banned from entering the forest and they were, like, they were hunters. So they adapted like, like you do to survive. Um, but these guys are still really, really marginalized, even though this, this horrible um, law was overturned many years ago. Um, so we work quite a lot with this community. Um, and within that community, there are lots of, you know, like tribal or gypsy girls who have, you know, uh, they don't have any sense of a source of livelihood. Um, there's also quite a, quite a big um, physically disabled community. So what we did is um, the NGO that I work with, I, I asked them, okay, can you identify 10 women that are, um, you know, interested and also like, um, you know, well, yeah, interested and also available for doing tailor training. Um, and I will find a way to find the funds. So in January, I did this pitch to um, one of the big British banks here who was basically, they were like sponsoring uh, women-owned business crowdfunding campaigns. And so I did this and I had put the launch date as the 1st of April and I couldn't change that launch date. So in March, I was kind of panicking because I was like, oh my God, I'm asking people for money during a global pandemic. This is really stupid, <laughs> um, but I had no choice. So I had to keep going because it was like, we've imagined like we picked the 10 women. I'm not going to turn around and tell them like, no, sorry, I, can't, I let you down. Like, I mean, they were counting on me. So so I fundraised during a global pandemic on top of launching during a global pandemic, which was like, uh, it was like an emotional roller coaster. I won't lie. It was really, really stressful. And um, like there were a few times I ended up in tears because it was just so hard. But in the end, um, we didn't make the goal, but we ended up making, so the, the, the initial goal was to train the 10 women 
um, seven of which are physical di physically disabled. Um, and all of them have these wonderful backstories um, and really sad situations where like, they are so, so able, but they, they're just, nobody will employ them. Um, so I wanted to do it. And um, so the, the plan was to train them for six months, pay them a stipend um, as a way of encouraging them to continue on with the training and to go all the way through and then increase the wages as they complete the training. Um, the plan was also to buy 10 new sewing machines, so industrial sewing machines, and one specialized overlock machine. Um, we came in at about 65% of the goal, which is um, was kind of was disappointing, but it was still a lot of money to be raised during a global pandemic. So I was pleased with that. Um, so we, since then, what we've done is um, we basically have the number of machines. Um, I'm really pleased to say that last week I got a picture of some of the women using the machines and it's so wonderful to see. Um, I'm going to put a blog post up soon on Chuck Theism's website. So like hopefully um, you'll see that soon as well, but it was just, it was really incredible. Um, and yeah, so like now, now that these women are back at work with, with social distancing guidelines and, you know, like safety first, of course, um, it's really cool. Like even though all this, this crazy stuff happened, we were able to, to do something. Um, and then some other good things have come out of it as well. Like there was, um, for that same gypsy community, um, essentially because they're so marginalized, the police wouldn't let them cross state lines. So they're in Pondicherry and they could not, which is, you know, like union territory. So they couldn't cross into like the Tamil Nadu state um, or pretty much anywhere. They couldn't get into any cities. So like, imagine these people don't have homes. They don't have, well, they have homes, but they don't have, they don't, I mean, it's like, it's quite hard to socially distance and these things under those conditions. And they didn't have any provisions. And since India's lockdown happened officially, uh, uh, like effectively overnight, they were basically stuck without food for several weeks. So me and some friends, uh, some like friends that also work with these, this NGO in Australia, um, in Belgium, just kind of all over the place, we all kind of pulled resources and started raising money for them. Um, I spent one Saturday afternoon literally ringing every single NGO that I could Google that was providing provisions to um, anywhere in India um, during COVID-19. I literally just started ringing them one afternoon, um, like one by one. And I found one that said, yeah, actually we can help get food to these people. Because imagine like they hadn't had food for like, I mean, they literally were just left there without food. Like so yeah. many people. So many forgotten. people were left. I know. So actually, forgotten is a great way to put it. Like I actually yeah. feel like the government just completely forgot to put something yeah. in place to ensure that the most vulnerable people of this country yeah. could access essentials. Yeah. That's the thing. And it's, 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 like, it's infuriating. It's just like, it's unacceptable. And so, yeah. So like, I remember this afternoon, I remember I was, I was so tired because like, you know, we've got our kids at home, we're working at home and like, we're just really tired, no help, no nothing. So like, and then yeah, like doing all these projects on top of like, you know, your day job and stuff. We're, we were quite tired and like the girls were napping. And so my husband was like, you need to sleep. And it was just like, I can't sleep. Like these, I need to do something. So literally just started ringing people. I found a woman, um, who was like, yeah, I think we can get food to these people. And somehow I don't know how I got so lucky. Even the NGO I was working with locally was like, I can't believe this work. But we managed to get food to 300, community, uh, 300 families in the community. Um, That's incredible. I don't know how, without like being able to send money, without being able to, like everything was on a cash basis, the borders were closed and somehow it worked. Um, so yeah, like COVID has been, it's been a really good learning experience. Um, it's, it's kind of highlighted a lot of, issues as I mean as it's done everywhere um the UK included um but I think looking back I 
I think, yeah, we will be able to say like we achieved some things. Um, I was also able to buy a, um, through the profits, like because sales have been good for some reason during the pandemic. So like, I guess people are at home and shopping online and yeah. I don't know, <laughs> but um, I'd like, I had, I had, I had an amazing month. I've only been selling for less than three months. And like this month, it's just incredible. Um, so like, That's amazing. I was Congratulations. able to, Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I was able to place more orders and like um, I was able to buy a sewing machine for our team in Bangladesh. And um, it's just, it's wonderful. It's really, really well, wonderful. You know what? I, I feel like also because people have been stuck inside for so long, they've really started to reflect also on uh, like, I've, I've connected with a lot of people who I wouldn't even have, wouldn't have said before were like conscious consumers, but are now starting to think more critically about the products and brands that they support, especially during a time like this where they realize how privileged and grateful they are for what they own and how you know they can make such simple decisions uh, through their buying choices that actually uh, in turn support some of the most marginalized people um, at this time. So uh, although the pandemic has definitely opened up a bucket of new issues across the world, <laughs> it's also cultivated community in a really beautiful way that I wasn't actually expecting. Um, now, I know that's not for every, like not everyone. I'm sure there's a lot of people who are still living their lovely, ignorant lives. But, you know, it's, it's definitely cultivated a, a, new, a new approach to how, what we want the future to look like. Because in order for us to actually make change happen, we do need to think about how we can do that on an individual level. And, you know, if gender-based violence, you know, just as a, as a small example, if, if that's a topic that, you know, is something that, you know, has personally affected you or your loved ones or someone in your community, like, you can, you know, bring about change by, you know, just, you know, simply, you know, going to SheWillSurvive.com, accessing resources that you can share with your community or, you know, buying a product that supports women in a way that, that can help them empower themselves in their community and in their household so that they're not becoming a, a victim of, of, of violence. So, you know, I think that's, I hope that's what really is coming out of the pandemic. You know, I say hope because I know it's not everyone is, is going through this, but I definitely think there's been a way of, of cultivating almost like a global community where we are connecting more meaningfully on these social environmental topics um, or injustices, I should say, um, that we really need to tackle in order to move forward uh, because they've definitely been amplified during this time. Like even gender-based violence during the pandemic has been rampant. Yeah. So um, I, I hope that more people are taking the time to think about how their individual actions can, can play a role in, in, in tackling social injustices. It really feels like it. And I think also... Um people are i think people like i mean nobody can really argue like well i suppose some people can argue but no people like <laughs> if you look at the data i mean like the world was a the world was in such a healthier like a much more healthy state the, like the planet was recovering over these past few months um and i think i hope that people will open their eyes as well to things you know like the environment and like sustainability and stuff like it's one of the things that i think has drawn people to our products because we literally are zero waste like we're using old saris that you know people just throw out and they're perfectly fine um or maybe they're a little bit stained or ripped or whatever but they make such beautiful things and i think i think this is a big part of it so i really hope that people will think more about their purchases and also like their their individual impact like you say um because i think yeah, I think, I think if one, if I've learned one thing, it's that um, throughout all of this, I mean, like COVID has literally interrupted all of our lives. The entire world has been impacted by this. But I think that it has also taught me that, you know, 
we can make a difference. Um, even sitting at home, like I remember at the beginning, I was so frustrated. It's like, you know, I want to go back to India and do all these things. And it was like, okay, you have to become creative. You have to find a way to do things from home. You have to, you know, find a way. And I mean, it's been a lot of work. It's been really hard work. Um, and I have failed so many times at so many different things. But like, as I was saying before, like you just go for it and then iterate. You can always change what you've done if it doesn't go the right way. Um, but you can make a difference. And I think, yeah, I think that's, that's really good. I hope, I hope that's something that a lot of people take away from all of this. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful statement to end with as well. Thank you for saying that. I, 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 I hope that more people are doing, doing the work. But, you know, that's why we do these things. Like, you know, that's why I do yep. this podcast, for example. Like, uh, I just want to make sure that people are hearing the stories of the people who are doing the real work so that they can connect, understand, and find unique ways to be part of the change as well. So um, honestly, thank you again. I know this is like another another episode we recorded, but again, I'm so <laughs> grateful for your time no and problem. I absolutely love chatting with you. Now, if, if people want to find you online, where can they go? Um, so you can go to shewillsurvive.com, which is the gender-based violence advocacy project and like the gender equality advocacy project, I should say. Um, there are lots of resources on there about like misogynistic cultural tendencies and like sexual assault. There are support resources for every single country in the world. Um, a lot of it is even language, um, like locally, uh, what do you say? Like, yeah, it's localized for language, excuse me. Um, I don't know if it's correct, but <laughs> but it seems to be okay. Um, and then, yeah, so you can contact me there via that. Um, there's a contact me page there. Or my social enterprise is Shaktiism. Um, so Shakti is power so s-h-a-k-t-i and then ism.com um and you can reach out to me through there um there's also like all the social media links and all of that is there um but yeah I, i'm very much accessible so if anybody is interested in i don't know learning more or getting in touch or contributing or whatever um you're very welcome to do so awesome yes and for our listeners again all of those links will be in the show notes but of course if you're just in your car listening along and you're like i want to learn more about this right now well don't do it while you're driving but pull over and uh and then do the googling and again i guess nobody's really driving around like honestly it's sunday here in india and we have a strict uh like full lockdown every sunday i don't know if you know about that um so every sunday absolutely nothing is open uh you can't be out so um interesting so lots of time to listen to podcasts and educate yourself and, and get in the know. Um, Jinnah, thank you again so much. It's, it's such a pleasure and uh, I appreciate your time. I know you got, you got the little ones at home as well, so I appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. Likewise. And thank you for having me. It's really my pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Ha, feeling inspired? See what other impact stories we have to share over on carsartist.com. Be sure to subscribe for weekly updates from Grant and I about content, giveaways, and new episodes from Disruptors for Good and Impact India. Looking to learn more about social impact and conscious living in India? Hit me up on Instagram at Jasmine Ray. Cheers, friends. <laughs>